Part Two, Chapter Four of the Fur Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne, Part Two, Chapter Four, A Night Encampment. And so Hobson had not been mistaken about the point of rupture. It was the isthmus which had yielded in the shock of the earthquake. Not a trace was to be seen of the American continent. Not a single cliff, even the volcano on the west, had disappeared. Nothing but the sea everywhere. The island on this side ended in a cape, coming to an almost sharp point, and it was evident that the substratum of ice. Fretted by the warmer waters of the current and exposed to all the fury of the elements, must rapidly dissolve. The explorers resumed their march, following the course of the fracture, which ran from west to east in an almost straight line. Its edges were not jagged or broken, but clear-cut, as if the division had been made with a sharp instrument, and here and there the conformation of the soil could easily be examined. The banks, half ice, half sand and earth, rose some ten feet from the water. They were perfectly perpendicular, without the slightest slope, and in some places there were traces of recent landslips. Sergeant Long pointed to several small blocks of ice floating in the offing and rapidly melting, which had evidently been broken off from their island. The action of the warm surf would, of course, soon eat away the new coastline. Which time had not yet closed with a kind of cement of snow and sand, such as covered the rest of the beach, and altogether the state of things was very far from reassuring. Before taking any rest, Mrs. Barnett, Hobson, and Long were anxious to finish their examination of the southern edge of the island. There would be plenty of daylight, for the sun would not set until eleven o'clock p.m. The brilliant orb of day. Was slowly advancing along the western horizon, and its oblique rays cast long shadows of themselves before the explorers, who conversed at intervals after long silent pauses, during which they gazed at the sea and thought of the dark future before them. Hobson intended to encamp for the night at Washburn Bay, when there eighteen miles would have been traversed, and if he were not mistaken. Half his circular journey would be accomplished. After a few hours' repose, he meant to return to Fort Hope along the western coast. No fresh incident marked the exploration of the short distance between Walrus's Bay and Washburn Bay, and at seven o'clock in the evening, the spot chosen for the encampment was reached. A similar change had taken place here. Of Washburn Bay, nothing remained. But the curve formed by the coastline of the island, and which was once its northern boundary, it stretched away without a break for seven miles to the cape they had named Cape Michael. This side of the island did not appear to have suffered at all in consequence of the rupture. The thickets of pine and birch, massed a little behind the cape, were in their fullest beauty at this time of the year, and a good many furred animals were disporting themselves on the plain. A halt was made at Washburn Bay, and the explorers were able to enjoy an extended view on the south, although they could not see any great distance on the north. 
The sun was so low on the horizon that its rays were intercepted by the rising ground on the west, and did not reach the little bay. It was not, however, yet night, nor could it be called twilight, as the sun had not set. Lieutenant, said Long, if by some miracle a bell were now to ring, what would you suppose it would mean? That it was supper time, replied Hobson. Don't you agree with me, Mrs. Barnett? Indeed I do, replied the lady addressed. And as our cloth is spread for us, let us sit down. This moss, although slightly worn, will suit us admirably, and was evidently intended for us by Providence. The bag of provisions was opened, some salt meat, a hair pâté from Mrs. Jolie's larder, with a few biscuits, formed their frugal supper. The meal was quickly over, and Hobson returned to the southwest angle of the island, whilst Mrs. Barnett rested at the foot of a low fir-tree, and Sergeant Long made ready the night quarters. The lieutenant was anxious to examine the piece of ice which formed the island, to ascertain, if possible, something of its structure. A little bank produced by a landslip enabled him to step down to the level of the sea, and from there he was able to look closely at the steep wall which formed the coast. Where he stood, the soil rose scarcely three feet above the water. The upper part consisted of a thin layer of earth and sand, mixed with crushed shells, and the lower of hard, compact, and if we may so express it, metallic ice, strong enough to support the upper soil of the island. The layer of ice was not more than one foot above the sea level. In consequence of the recent fracture, it was easy to see the regular disposition of the sheets of ice piled up horizontally, and which had evidently been produced by successive frosts in comparatively quieter waters. We know that freezing commences on the surface of liquids, and as the cold increases, the thickness of the crust becomes greater, the solidification proceeding from the top downwards. That at least is the case in waters that are at rest. It has, however, been observed that the very reverse is the case in running waters, the ice forming at the bottom and subsequently rising to the surface. It was evident, then, that the flow which formed the foundation of Victoria Island had been formed in calm waters on the shores of the North American continent. The freezing had evidently commenced on the surface, and the thaw would begin at the bottom, according to a well-known law, so that the ice-field would gradually decrease in weight as it became thawed by the warmer waters through which it was passing, and the general level of the island would sink in proportion. This was the great danger. As we have just stated, Hobson noticed that the solid ice, the ice-field properly so called, was only about one foot above the sea-level. We know that four-fifths of a floating mass of ice are always submerged. For one foot of an iceberg or ice-field above the water, there are four below it. It must, however, be remarked that the density, or rather specific weight of floating ice, varies considerably according to its mode of formation or origin. The ice-masses, which proceed from sea-water, porous, opaque, and tinted with blue or green, according as they are struck by the rays of the sun, are lighter than ice formed from fresh water. 
all things considered, and making due allowance for the weight of the mineral and vegetable layer above the ice, Hobson concluded it to be about four or five feet thick below the sea level. The different declivities of the island, the little hills and rising ground would of course only affect the upper soil, and it might reasonably be supposed that the wandering island was not immersed more than five feet. This made Hobson very anxious, only five feet, setting aside the causes of dissolution to which the ice-field might be subjected, would not the slightest shock cause a rupture of the surface? Might not a rough sea or gale of wind cause a dislocation of the ice-field, which would lead to its breaking up into small portions, and to its final decomposition? Oh, for the speedy arrival of winter, with its bitter cold! Would that the column of mercury were frozen in its cistern! Nothing but the rigor of an arctic winter could consolidate and thicken the foundations of their island, and establish a means of communication between it and the continent. Hobson returned to the halting-place, little cheered by his discoveries, and found Long busy making arrangements for the night, for he had no idea of sleeping beneath the open sky, although Mrs. Barnett declared herself quite ready to do so. He told the lieutenant that he intended to dig a hole in the ice big enough to hold three persons, in fact, to make a kind of snow-hut, in which they would be protected from the cold night air. "'In the land of the Eskimo,' he said, "'nothing is wiser than to do as the Eskimo do.' Hobson approved, but advised the sergeant not to dig too deeply, as the ice was not more than five feet thick. Long set to work. With the aid of his hatchet and ice-chisel, he soon cleared away the earth, and hollowed out a kind of passage, sloping gently down to the crust of ice. He next attacked the brittle mass, which had been covered over with sand and earth for so many centuries. It would not take more than an hour to hollow out a subterranean retreat, or rather a burrow with walls of ice, which would keep in the heat, and therefore serve well for a resting-place during the short night. Whilst Long was working away, like a white ant, Hobson communicated the result of his observations to Mrs. Barnett. He did not disguise from her that the construction of Victoria Island rendered him very uneasy. He felt sure that the thinness of the ice would lead to the opening of ravines on the surface before Long, where it would be impossible to foresee, and of course it would be equally impossible to prevent them. The wandering island might at any moment settle down in consequence of a change in its specific gravity, or break up into more or less numerous islets, the duration of which must necessarily be ephemeral. He judged, therefore, that it would be best for the members of the colony to keep together as much as possible, and not to leave the fort, that they might all share the same chances." Hobson was proceeding further to unfold his views, when cries for help were heard. Mrs. Barnett started to her feet, and both looked round in every direction, but nothing was to be seen. The cries were now redoubled, and Hobson exclaimed, "'The sergeant! The sergeant!' And followed by Mrs. Barnett, he rushed towards the burrow, and he had scarcely reached the opening of the snow-house, before he saw Sergeant Long 
clutching with both hands at his knife, which he had struck in the wall of ice, and calling out loudly, although with the most perfect self-possession. His head and arms alone were visible. Whilst he was digging, the ice had given way suddenly beneath him, and he was plunged into water up to his waist. Hobson merely said, "'Keep hold!' And creeping through the passage, he was soon at the edge of the hole. The poor sergeant seized his hand, and he was soon rescued from his perilous position. "'Good God, sergeant!' exclaimed Mrs. Barnett. "'What has happened?' "'Nothing.' replied Long, shaking himself like a wet spaniel, except that the ice gave way under me, and I took a compulsory bath. "'You forgot what I told you about not digging too deeply, then,' said Hobson. "'Beg pardon, sir. I hadn't cut through fifteen inches of the ice, and I expect there was a kind of cavern where I was working. The ice did not touch the water. It was just like going through a ceiling. If I hadn't been able to hang on by my knife—' I should have slipped under the island like a fool, and that would have been a pity, wouldn't it, madam? A very great pity, my brave fellow, said Mrs. Barnett, pressing his hand. Long's explanation was correct. For some reason or another, most likely, from an accumulation of air, the ice had formed a kind of vault above the water, and, of course, it soon gave way under the weight of the sergeant and the blows of his chisel. The same thing might happen in other parts of the island, which was anything but reassuring. Where could they be certain of treading on firm ground? Might not the earth give way beneath their feet at any minute? What heart, however brave, could not have sunk at the thought of the thin partition between them and the awful gulf of the ocean? Sergeant Long, however, thought but little of his bath, and was ready to begin mining in some other place. This Mrs. Barnett would not allow. A night in the open air would do her no harm. The shelter of the coppice near would be protection enough for them all, and Sergeant Long was obliged to submit. The camp was, therefore, moved back some thirty yards from the beach, to a rising ground on which grew a few clumps of pines and willows, which could scarcely be called a wood. Towards ten o'clock the disk of the sun began to dip below the horizon, and before it disappeared for the few hours of the night, a crackling fire of dead branches was blazing at the camp. Long had now a fine opportunity of drying his legs, of which he gladly availed himself. He and Hobson talked together earnestly until twilight set in. Mrs. Barnett occasionally joined in the conversation doing the best she could to cheer the disheartened lieutenant. The sky was bright with stars, and the holy influence of the night could not fail to calm his troubled spirit. The wind murmured softly amongst the pines. Even the sea appeared to be wrapped in slumber, its bosom slightly heaving with the swell, which died away upon the beach with a faint rippling sound. All creation was hushed, not even the wail of a sea-bird broke upon the ear. The crisp crackling of the dead branches was exchanged for a steady flame, and nothing but the voices of the wanderers broke the sublime, the awful silence of the night. "'Who would imagine,' said Mrs. Barnett, "'that we were floating on the surface of the ocean? It really requires an effort to realize it, for the sea which is carrying us along in its fatal grasp 
appears to be absolutely motionless. Yes, madam, replied Hobson, and if the floor of our carriage were solid, if I did not know that sooner or later the keel of our boat will be missing, that some day its hull will burst open, and finally, if I knew where we were going, I should rather enjoy floating on the ocean like this. Well, lieutenant, rejoined Mrs. Barnett, could there be a pleasanter mode of travelling than ours? We feel no motion. Our island has exactly the same speed as the current which is bearing it away. Is it not like a balloon voyage in the air? What could be more delightful than advancing with one's own house, garden, park, etc.? A wandering island, with a solid, insubmersible foundation, would really be the most comfortable and wonderful conveyance that could possibly be imagined. I have heard of hanging gardens. Perhaps, some day, floating parks will be invented which will carry us all over the globe. Their size will render them insensible to the action of the waves. They will have nothing to fear from storms, and perhaps, with a favorable wind, they might be guided by means of immense sails. What marvels of vegetation would be spread before the eyes of the passengers when they passed from temperate to torrid zones? With skilful pilots, well acquainted with the currents, it might be possible to remain in one latitude and enjoy a perpetual spring. Hobson could not help smiling at Mrs. Barnett's fancies. The brave woman ran on with such an easy flow of words. She talked with as little effort as Victoria Island moved. And was she not right? It would have been a very pleasant mode of travelling if there had been no danger of their conveyance. melted and being swallowed up by the sea. The night passed on, and the explorers slept a few hours. At daybreak they breakfasted, and thoroughly enjoyed their meal. The warmth and rest had refreshed them, and they resumed their journey at about six o'clock a.m. From Cape Michael to the former Port Barnett, the coast ran in an almost straight line, from south to north, For about eleven miles. There was nothing worthy of note about it. The shores were low and pretty even all the way, and seemed to have suffered no alteration since the breaking of the isthmus. Long, in obedience to the lieutenant, made benchmarks along the beach, that any further change might easily be noted. Hobson was naturally anxious to get back to Fort Hope the same day, and Mrs. Barnett was also eager to return to her friends. It was, of course, desirable under the circumstances that the commanding officer should not be long absent from the fort. All haste was therefore made, and by taking a short cut they arrived at noon at the little promontory which formerly protected Port Barnett from the east winds. It was not more than eight miles from this point to Fort Hope, and before four o'clock p.m. the shouts of Corporal Joliffe. Welcome their return to the factory. End of chapter four.